the University Press of Kentucky is pleased to announce that John Billimer, author of Hitchcock and the Censors, is the recipient of the 2020 Edgar Allan Poe Award for Best Critical-slash-Biographical Work. This release is available online at KentuckyPress.com. The Edgar Awards, presented by Mystery Writers of America, honors the best in mystery fiction, nonfiction, and television. Are you looking for organizations that support essential workers? Our friends at Descent Pins have made it easy. Just visit DescentPins.com essential. That's D-I-S-S-E-N-T-P-I-N-S dot com slash essential. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. Whether you're still in lockdown or somewhere that has begun to reopen, the coronavirus pandemic isn't over, and there's still a lot to process. It doesn't matter if you've decided that everything's going to be fine from here on out, or firmly believe that the worst is yet to come. The future, as always, is uncertain. The June issue of Harper's Magazine has no great proclamations or hot takes. We're trying to help you make your own meaning out of this crisis. I spoke with Christopher Beha, the editor of Harper's, about making editorial decisions and putting a magazine together while the world is on lockdown. In the June issue, you've written the inaugural column called The Editor's Desk. What was the rationale behind starting that? Well, the first thing I should say is, as with many things at Harper's that might appear new, it actually is drawn from our illustrious history. Of course, the Easy Chair column, everyone knows, has been a feature of the magazine for almost the entire 170 years that the magazine has been published. And in addition to the Easy Chair, there was for many years a column written by Henry Mills Alden, the longtime Harper's editor called The Editor's Drawer. And this was when William Dean Howells was writing The Easy Chair. He was a major figure, but he was not actually an editor working in the offices of the magazine. And so there was the idea that the editor's drawer would be a more conventional editor's note that would be written from within the offices of the magazine. And it seemed you know, oddly, we made this decision just as we were all leaving the office um, because we are working remotely. But it seemed a good time at a time when we have returned to um, the format of having the easy chair column being written by outside columnists to have a voice from within the magazine speaking a, a bit about these um, extraordinary times under which we're now producing our issues. Right. And it's important to note that our production schedule is two months ahead. So and you, you talk about this in the in the editor's desk that it, it's hard to be timely. So instead of being timely, we try to be not evergreen, but something that transcends what's going on at the moment and something that means something more than what, you know, what we might be concerned about in mid-February. Right. Well, the the, the um, coronavirus story, as I was conceiving of this column back in late March, was actually one of the rare stories that you knew would still be a story two months later. Right. But, of course, 
it was impossible to say what the contours of the story would be. Right. And I mean, a big part of what you've written about coronavirus is that there's a disruption of our sense of time with the pandemic that first there was the destabilizing tempo of the exponential spread. Then I was followed by a feeling that everything is on pause. So what does it feel like now? Or are we still sort of stuck in that mode? Well, for me, you know, I, I didn't get into this in the column because it seemed a little bit navel gazing. But I did speak a little bit about the challenges of putting out a monthly magazine in the era of the 24-hour news cycle and the need to exist in that cycle while also taking the longer view of things. Um, what I didn't say is that that is, is precisely the balance that I think has been forced on all of us by this period of the kind of suspension of everyday life, um, which is there is new news every day, particularly if you're in New York, as most of us who work on the staff of the magazine are, you get these new case numbers and these new mortality numbers and these new hospitalization numbers. And there's new data coming in every day. And there's a micro story surrounding that. For a long time, you also then had Trump doing these daily press conferences and there's whatever ridiculous thing Trump said that day about, you know, drinking bleach or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, so there's the constant churn of the daily thing, but then there's also all of it as part of an overarching story that is actually by today's standards moving incredibly slowly. So we're basically in the same place now that we were in six weeks ago. And there are very, very, very few stories, basically, or life experiences in our age um, that unfold on that scale. So how does Harper's put together an issue under these conditions? And what have the main challenges been? Well, I think the first thing that you you do is um, uh, you look at what you've already got under assignment, and you think about the ways that certain pieces can relate to what we're all going through because you just can't start from scratch on certain stories and expect to get them in front of readers at a time where they will still be relevant. But the second thing you do, I think, is you just keep going about doing the stuff that you were doing anyway because, as I was saying before, we've always had to live with the fact that we are not going to be on what the story is at that moment. And we try to create stuff that has some permanence to it, you know? Right. So to take the case of this issue, we have the easy chair column that comes right after my editor's desk column is uh, Thomas Chatterton Williams giving a reading of, of Camus' The Plague. I think a lot of people have been reading that book, myself included, recently, and a lot of people have been writing their responses to it. But I think he, he has a particularly acute and moving one. But at the same time, our cover is an essay by Richard Russo about literary imagination and cultural appropriation. Russo is a, is a very good, very well-regarded novelist. He is Pulitzer Prize winner. Pulitzer Prize winner. And he is also happens to be a baby boomer era straight white man. Um, <laughs> and he is, uh, you know, which is to say that he came up 
during an era where there was no one who would say that based on his position as a straight white man, he couldn't do X, Y, or Z. But over the course of his career, he has faced those questions. And there was, you know, it seems like a million years ago now that there was this controversy about this novel, American Dirt, written by a white American woman about the experience of a Mexican mother fleeing with her children from a a drug cartel um, across the border that sparked a lot of controversy for all sorts of reasons. I haven't read the book, but, but, but people say that she did a pretty inept job at representing various pieces of Mexican culture. There was a lot about the publicity and the rollout around the book that was incredibly culturally insensitive, etc. So th- that prompted Richard Russo's meditations on this subject. However, as with many Harper's pieces, it it was not meant to be a response to this very narrow controversy. It was meant to be a meditation on a large and lasting subject. So everyone has now forgotten about American Dirt, although it's still on the bestseller list, but the controversy seems minor in the face of what we're all living with now. And if this had merely been a response to that, we would have had to question whether we were still going to run it on our cover. But because we attempted, as we generally try to do, to take a small story and to think about the way it speaks to enduring truths about various subjects, I felt like we could be confident that we would publish this into this moment and it would still have interest to people. And we we hope it will still have interest to people six months from now and six years from now and 60 years from now. Hmm. And you mentioned Thomas Chariton Williams. You mentioned Richard Russo. What else is in the magazine, whether it does or does not necessarily speak to the moment? Well, we have a very nice reported essay by... Theodore Ross, Ted Ross, who is a former Harper's editor who lived for 20 years in Vietnam, who then married a Vietnamese woman, Vietnamese American, and has um, a, a, a lot of connections to the Vietnamese American culture in the U.S. and became very interested in the phenomenon of Vietnamese Americans who have been moving back to Vietnam, or in some cases moving to Vietnam for the first time because they were born, you know, in the mid to late 70s uh, in America as the children of refugees. And as there has been an opening up of of Vietnam, a a lot of uh, Vietnamese Americans who either left as children or had never lived there before are, are, are moving to Vietnam. And he was interested in that phenomenon. Ted talks about the fact that both of his sets of grandparents were immigrants. And um, at the time, you know, they were, they were Jewish immigrants coming from Central Europe at a time where the push towards assimilation was, was very, very strong. They considered it part of their job as immigrants to become fully American. And that meant a particular kind of middle class, middle American, white version of an upwardly mobile version of of what it meant to be American. And he was interested in in what it meant that people coming over now felt less of that push, or even to some extent did not feel sufficiently American that they wanted to stay here. 
And so he he reported it out by going to Ho Chi Minh City and spending time with a lot of these um, transplants between Vietnam and America. And then I always like to focus on our fiction. And we have a wonderful story by a, a writer named uh, Hilary Leichter called Terra Story. Hilary's novel, Temporary, just came out. And uh, she's a wonderful fiction writer. This one has a, um, a bit of a magical realist element to it. It's about a young couple who are struggling economically in a small apartment in New York who magically find that their apartment has a terrace, outdoor space, um, the great holy grail of American real estate that is only available to them under certain circumstances. And and obviously it was not written um, with everyone being shut up in their apartments in mind, but and was not, we did not uh, acquire it with that in mind. But I think it actually fits very nicely as a kind of imaginative expression of the circumstances that we're all living under. And then we have a, a, a report by Ian Volner on the affordable housing movement that really gives a, a history of the efforts of affordable housing over the second half of the 20th century into the 21st century, a history that includes Volner's own grandfather who played a part in the early days of the affordable housing movement. And this is a great example of, of the kind of story that is not speaking to anything that is in the news on any given day, but is speaking to a much larger issue that is always with us. And as we deal with the fallout, the widespread unemployment and the economic collapse uh, that's coming out of the coronavirus shutdown, we're obviously going to find again that efforts to make affordable housing within cities is is going to be you know forefront of people's minds. So that that that's one that will remain relevant under almost any circumstances. I think. Right. I wanted to go back a bit. Speaking of perhaps things that can get us through these strange, slow-moving yet utterly dire times. In the May issue, you wrote a review of the book Philosopher of the Heart, which is a biography of Soren Kierkegaard by Claire Carlyle. In that review, you write about Kierkegaard's concept of inwardness and how it offers an alternative to the stance that we are all these historically determined beings whose, quote, primary objective in life is to respond to the peculiar challenges of our moment, end quote. And it's tempting to feel like the coronavirus is the ultimate uh, particular challenge of the moment, right? But what does Kierkegaard offer us at a time like this? Well, I, you know, I think that, uh, as, as you said, one of his chief concepts was this concept of inwardness. And the thing about inwardness, as, as it suggests, is that it has to do with, with our private selves. It has to do with the, uh, the, the struggles that we work through internally and that it can't be objectified for the understanding of anyone else. Um, I write towards the end of the piece that, um, you know, Kierkegaard lived through the revolutions of 1848 that swept through all of Europe 
including Denmark, where he was from. And actually, Denmark was the one place because there was a, a, a sort of reactionary response to those revolutions in many places. It was in those revolutions that Denmark made its transition to democracy, essentially, that really stuck. It was one of the great success stories of the 1848 revolutions. But anyway, Kierkegaard played no part in any of that whatsoever. And he sat in his room and worked on, as he called it, uh, uh, the problem of being religious. What, what he meant by being religious, he was you know, an Orthodox Christian believer, but what he meant by being religious was orienting oneself as an individual, not through participation in the culture of a church, um, but through your individual existence towards the, the, this sense of the permanent and the absolute. And it was something to him that you really did alone in a room. So anyway, I think it could be said in a way that for many of us, what quarantine has done is put us in that position, whether we like it or not. We are not out in the world participating in things. We are in a room by ourselves. We are faced in a very acute and immediate way with the fact of human frailty, human suffering, human mortality. And, and, and we are really being forced in many ways to orient ourselves towards those facts in ways that we, we have not been before. And I think it's been very hard for a lot of people. You know, it seems like an, an awful lot of people are struggling through this period. And, and at least part of that struggle is the challenge of being faced with these difficult facts and then put in a room and forced to deal with them by yourself. Right. You might be doing eight hours a day, working at a computer, and then transitioning to watching something on that computer or just talking with your friends using that computer and that there's just no break <laughs> from any of this, any of this, uh, the sameness, the crushing sameness. Well, there's also, I talk about this in, in my column, there's a certain irony to this term social distancing, right? Because the word social has come in the last 15 years, let's say, to mean something very particular and unprecedented in, in human history. There is this idea that socializing or, or, or doing social is something that you actually do at home while no one else is in the room with you because you're being social mm -hmm. by being on your phone or by being on your computer. And that socializing does not involve physical proximity to other people. So in a way, social distancing is a fascinating concept for our particular time and place. And I think it is making a lot of people that I know acutely aware of the limits of that kind of socializing. Once we're all of a sudden faced with a world where that's all we've got. You know, would, um, would quarantine be uh, a lot more difficult if I couldn't? Uh, go on Twitter and have conversations with other people? Probably. Would, would putting out a magazine under quarantine be a lot more difficult and possibly impossible if we didn't have all of this information technology that's developed in the last generation? Absolutely. At the same time, the fact that we have all this technology and we are still suffering in the ways that we are under quarantine is a kind of reminder of the limits of this technology as a connector of human beings. Right. And that it's not just mediated by technology, but it's mediated by these corporations that, you know, I'm thinking of something like the introduction of the like button. So instead of writing an actual response to something someone has written, you like it 
or you give it a smiley face or whatever or you give it a sad face like it's a the limitations of that are becoming more glaring and maddening sure but I, I don't i don't want to be dismissive of that which i think is is a real point but even a perfectly constructed social media platform that was being driven by human needs rather than the needs of capital would still have built-in limits and that limit is if i am sitting on a computer and you are sitting on your computer 500 miles away you know, at, while we're having this conversation, the, the reality is that we are not present to each other. That is simply not the same thing as being in the, in the same room with each other. I can't see you. There's ways that we can't respond to each other. And, and, and you know, our, our, our many listeners who I'm, I'm happy are listening right now are not, in fact, present with me, and I am not present with them simply because they can hear my voice speaking to them. There is something about actual physical proximity that I think we have come to radically undervalue over the last generation that all of a sudden now that it is being really truly taken from us, I think a lot of people are finding, you know, it is, it is an essential part of human life that we had been taking for granted and that we had been thinking, you know, we might be getting towards a place where we could do without. Right. It's the wire monkey and the uh, soft padded monkey <laughs> situation all over again. Um, and speaking of data, you published a novel earlier this month called The Index of Self-Destructive Acts. And the protagonist is a Nate Silver-esque man who he's hired by a legacy publication. It's a very sort of callous business move by the publication to kind of grind as much as they can out of um, and use social and use the internet, the worst of the internet to make a lot of money for themselves. So what was it like to release such a major project right now? I mean, if I'm being completely honest, it wasn't, it wasn't great <laughs> to publish it in, in this moment. Um, it was a real challenge. I, I, I have been trying and mostly succeeding putting it into proper perspective. There have been many, many more people who have been more profoundly harmed, much more profoundly harmed than, than I have by these events. But to work on a book for six years and then have it come out into the world at a time where brick and mortar bookstores are sh shut and where the dominant online book retailer has quote unquote deprioritized the sale of books, that's not great. Uh, there's no getting around it. However, the thing I've told myself, and this is similar to my philosophy about the magazine, is books, like every other cultural product now, are deemed to succeed or fail based on their release window of you know, the month or however long after they come out. Um, but you don't, you don't work on a book for six years so that it will get some attention the month it comes out, so that it will get certain reviews the month it comes out. Uh, you do it because you want to make a, a lasting piece of art. So I've already heard very nice things from the readers who have found it. That's great. But, you know, the hope, and uh, it sounds a little bit um, arrogant, but, you know, it's just your hope. It's why you're doing it. But the hope is that you're making something permanent. It's just too much work, in my experience, writing a novel to not 
try to make something that will last. So when I envision my ideal reader, I'm honestly envisioning someone 100 years from now. And uh, if the book were to last that long, the fact that it came out in the middle of this pandemic would be, a, you know, at best a minor curiosity about the book. Right. And well, obviously, as a as an editor at a magazine, you probably read a book's worth of text once every three days, probably. So how has your uh, relationship to reading changed? And what have you been reading? Well, my relationship to reading, I, I should say that in addition to uh, uh, putting out a new book, my wife and I had a baby seven weeks ago now. So we're at home with a newborn, and that has affected my relationship to reading much more than uh, anything going on outside of the household. So I, I, I have fewer hours in the day to read, for sure. That said, uh, I am still doing it. It's, it's, it's not something that I would ever get out of the habit of. It's just a central part of my makeup mm-hmm. of who I am. And right now, I am reading one of my favorite novels, rereading, and it's a big hulking doorstep of a novel, The Recognitions by William Gaddis. It's just about a thousand pages, and I'm about 850 pages into it. And then when I'm done with that, I'm going to read another one of his doorstops, JR. And uh, I am actually reading these for an essay for Harper's because both of those books will be reissued by New York Review this fall. So Gaddis is a, is a wonderful novelist. Um, he's a challenging novelist. He requires your attention. And I don't always have attention right now. So he, that's, there's been that. But, um, you know, maybe I can... Uh, I can sit down with you four or five months from now to, uh, to talk more about William Gaddis. Well, we can hope. And <laughs> whatever does happen, it's probably going to be very gradual, very slow. There's not going to be VJ day for this thing. But thank you for taking the time to speak with me. And uh, hope your family and you are well. You too. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is cut and shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save 